When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. This week, we're talking Hunting Dog Confidential with Jennifer Wapinski. Welcome to the show for episode number 124. Project Up and Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Know where you stand with Onyx and use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. If you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. And by CZ USA Shotguns. Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-side to the Upland Ultralight, Wing Shooter Elite over and unders, check out their all-terrain models. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos. Head over to cz-usa.com to check out all of their shotguns. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time i've got the viking techs and the viking neos have been running the neoprene models for four years now just got the techs this year they're a nice lighter weight early season year-round training boot i love my gum leaf boots and if you hunt wet muddy 
nasty conditions, you will too. Head over to gumleafusa.com, use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% on your next pair of boots. And by Dr. Callers. For over 30 years, Doctra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Learn more at Doctra.com. And by ESP, Electronic Shooters Protection, Custom Fit Electronic Hearing Protection. I just spent a couple days in South Dakota. We talked to Jack Homa, the owner, last week. I wore my ESPs in South Dakota. They were phenomenal for that application. Wind noise was a non-issue. Volume controls allowed me to get the bird flushes where I wanted them without being overwhelmed by all the other sounds. I could hear what everybody was saying. All the gunshots were blocked out. My ESP Apex models performed very, very well in South Dakota, and I was happy I had them. You can check out our podcast from last week, and you can also learn more by heading to ESPamerica.com. And by Sage and Breaker. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible in their products, in their pursuits, and in their vision. It's this dedication to crafting the highest quality products that give hunters and gun owners solutions that are reliable, convenient, and everlasting. And Sage and Breaker is proud to pass on that caliber of craftsmanship to you. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epignol Breton, French Brittany Spaniels from Champion Bloodlines, field tested and family approved for over 30 years. You can learn more by listening to Project Up and Podcast number 88 or by visiting trinitykennels.org. And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels. I just returned from a trip to South Dakota at Cronkite Farm, one of the homes of Dakota 283 Kennels. Spent some time with Greg Cronkite, shot my first wild roosters, had an amazing experience. Greg Cronkite, the owner of Dakota 283, is a heck of a guy. He was an awesome host, and I really enjoyed hunting with him. We talked kennels. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to have a podcast upcoming where we'll talk a little bit more about our hunt and our experience together. For now, head over to Dakota283.com. Check out the newly designed website and get yourself a Dakota 283 kennel today. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Andrew E. He's a listener. He emailed me. He started hunting later in life. He's a U.S. Army veteran. Shared a very cool story with me about how he was up at his cabin in Maine. Decided to go out and try to find some grouse for the very first time. Dogless. He found three grouse. Ultimately, put one of them in the bag. Sent me some pictures. And I enjoyed Andrew sharing his upland hunting experience with me. Project Upland t-shirt headed Andrew's way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Share the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Send us some feedback, guest suggestion, or an upland hunting story and how the podcast has played a role in your upland hunting experience. Love to hear from our listeners. You can email me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. And with that said, we're moving into today's interview. Today we're talking hunting dog confidential, but more importantly, we're talking with Jennifer Wapinski, who is newer to upland hunting. And we recap her entry into the world of upland hunting and bird dogs that has taken place over the last handful of years. I really enjoyed getting Jennifer's story and leading into our conversation about the Hunting Dog Confidential and the newly launched magazine. I think you're going to enjoy this one. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Jennifer Wapinski. Well, if Joe's not watching Netflix, what are you doing? 
he's, he's in the garage, so you hear the saw, not the DVD. Okay. All right, Jennifer. Well, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Project Helpful Podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's a, well, I guess, suppose we're at the beginning of a holiday week, and you told me that you're going to be unplugging a little bit and hunting a little bit later this week, so I'm guessing you're looking forward to that. Certainly are, yeah. We've been taking advantage of every every free moment this season to get over the mountains to the east side of the state and, and get on some birds. Yeah, for sure. Are you and Joe working from home, kind of a little bit more flexibility this, this season, are, like, yeah. like a lot of folks? Yeah, we've been virtual since March, okay. um, and so we decided to really take that, uh, test that this year. We got a little, sure. little camping trailer and we parked the trailer over in Eastern Washington and that's become our little mobile hunting base. And, uh, and so like Thursday nights we head over there and I can work from there on Fridays and, and cool. then, uh, head out and hunt for the weekend. So yeah, we've, we've taken mobile office, uh, to the next level. I like it. I like it. I think a lot of folks have, I've certainly been using the flexibility to my advantage this year and there's a mentality sometimes like I have the mentality, like got to be out all day long, every day, all day, you know, as much as you can, but there's something to be said about just being able to get those mini doses and, and small hunts whenever you can and kind of using the flexibility of scheduling. I think it works well. For sure. And, and we really wanted to try this year to get to know our local area, local, like two to three hours away. Um, sure. it, it's tempting to want to take these big trips. And, you know, the last couple of years we've gone to South Dakota and, and done these major hunting getaways. But this year we said, well, first of all, we're staying closer to home and, and we'd really yeah. like to really get to know our local areas. It's, it's tempting to want to do the variety and keep going to new places, but you get better if you learn a particular spot and the birds that are there and, and, and where you can tend to find the right habitat. So we're, we're trying to get better and, and a little bit hunt a little smarter this year. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Jennifer. Well, I'm way ahead of myself here. I got to, I should probably <laughs> properly introduce you, Jennifer. Is it Wapensky or Wapensky? Wapensky. Wapensky. All right. I had it right the first time. A coworker of mine of sorts at, at Northwoods Collective and involved in Project Upland and some of the stuff we do and Hunting Dog Confidential, which we're definitely going to talk about. But why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the things you're involved with and to start, put us on the map because we alluded to it, but you're out west, right, Jennifer? Yeah, I'm up in the northwest. I'm I'm okay. in Washington. I live about an hour northeast of Seattle. Um, hunting opportunities for us are are over the mountains, a couple hours away. But yeah. in general, the the northwest is just an awesome place for an, an outdoor centric lifestyle. So we do a lot of hunting and a lot of fishing. But yeah, I started writing for Project Upland as a uh, brand new rookie hunter, first bird dog. What the heck have I gotten myself into? Uh, kind <laughs> of kind of a shtick in my articles and. And that over the last couple of years has, has grown into um, much more of a, an involved role with, with Project Upland, doing um, yeah. uh, some editorial work for the website, as well as uh, Hunting Dog Confidential, which has uh, grown in leaps and bounds in the last uh, nine months or so. Yeah, it's been a big year for Hunting Dog Confidential, definitely want to talk more about that and dive into some of that story. Hopefully some of the listeners here on the Project Elfman podcast have had a chance to check out the Hunting Dog Confidential podcast. And if they haven't, we'll hopefully leave them with a peaked curiosity yeah. uh, on that topic. You're in the Northwest now, but I, I have bits and pieces of your story because we've got to hang out and spend a little time with you and Joe at Pheasant Fest the last couple of years and some of the other things that we do. But give me your background in this as it relates to outdoors and how you eventually found your way into the world of upland bird hunting. Yeah, so I'm a Midwest transplant here. I was uh, born and raised in Michigan. 
And uh, unfortunately, now I, I never hunted when I was in Michigan. So all these stories yeah. of grouse and woodcock, I'm jealous. I would love to chase a woodcock someday. It was a, it was a missed opportunity while I was there. <laughs> but um, grew up in a really outdoor-oriented family, a lot of camping, hiking, fishing. We traveled west every year uh, for our, our road trip family vacations. And, and so striking off on my own, marrying Joe, uh, we continued that. We did a ton of backpacking. Um, you know, dogs were a part of our life, the outdoors, fishing. Um, but never hunting until one day, a couple years ago, Joe said, you know, I, I think I'd like to try duck hunting. I've been looking into it. I've been reading online articles. I, I think it's something that would be kind of fun to do. And I said, sure, knock yourself out. Tell me how it is, yeah. you know. And that, and so he was going out and he, he hooked up with a, a mentor who was kind of showing him the ropes a little bit. But for the most part, it was self-taught and figuring out where to go. And eventually I got curious and, and said, Okay, I'll I'll come along. And so we did it by canoe. Not we didn't have a bird dog, um, and so I became the the trained retriever. He would shoot a duck and mark it, and I would paddle out in the boat and, <laughs> and try to get it. So um, eventually, way to go, Joe. Yeah, yeah smart. So I wanted um, I wanted a promotion, and so uh, so we decided that for our next dog, we should get a dog that uh, that wanted to come along and, and would be able to to work with us and. And uh, and I went to Hunter's Ed and and uh, got my license and eventually came along as a gunner and and not just as the retriever. So uh, the rest, I guess, is history. Um, I really fell in love with with Upland because I learned that you don't have to get up at oh dark thirty. Um, you can be dry, yes. the sun can be shining, um, yep. and you can hunt in the middle of the day, which really suited my style. So I uh, I really pushed us into. Uh, more pheasant hunting, quail hunting, and, and um, Washington just has so many opportunities for upland birds. Yeah. We don't have a lot of uh, bird numbers, but the variety is just phenomenal. I mean, you can go out in one day and find quail, hunts, chucker, pheasant, uh, maybe a grouse if you're in the right spot. So we've got a, a ton to explore, and, and we're still very much in the middle of doing that. Uh, all right, so we're back at it. I was just commenting about how cool it is that the western states tend to have a close proximity seemingly really cool mixed bag options and it sounds like you and joe are taking full advantage of that when you yeah, can yeah yeah for sure we've been we've been finding huns and chucker like super close to each other i still have not shot my first hun yet it's it's the goal species for this year but i've certainly okay. seen a bunch of them and i've i've shot in their general direction but uh, that's that's the big goal for this year excellent yeah i think you know you commented about how upland hunting is not so tied to you know dusk or dawn like like say some big game hunting and duck hunting and that certainly plays into sort of the flexibility that we were talking about a little bit earlier and being you can be opportunistic and kind of get out and there's of course are certain times of the day that are better than others but there are the barriers to entry in upland hunting are low in that you can really go and do it very flexibly Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's what I love about it, and it's also far less gear intensive. I yes. I, just, I have this aversion to having to put together, you know, a couple dozen decoys and a blind bag and the waders and all the stuff. It just you feels like you're exhausted by the time you get set up to go out and go duck hunting. So, which is yeah. not to disparage duck hunting at all. I still do it, and uh, and I love duck. They're some of my favorite eating game. But uh, yeah, the gears. I, I I really like how not gear intensive upland hunting is. Yeah, and I think upland hunters, like all hunters, can absolutely get carried away with oh, gear, for but sure. you certainly you certainly don't have, you don't to. have to. Yeah. <laughs> so you 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 mentioned something 
regarding hunter safety, and I want to touch on that a little bit because this is a something that I was talking to Mark Norquist about a couple of weeks ago on one of the podcasts about new hunters, and that being one of the historical barriers to entry. And in a place where I grew up, it was just kind of one of those things where you know a lot of people were doing it. You'd go and get your hunter safety. It was kind of the norm. And mm-hmm. I know that states have loosened up the requirements on hunter safety maybe not the requirements but it's just the way that you can go about getting it so i'd be curious to hear your experience and how difficult or not difficult it was to get your hunter safety yeah and 2020 is certainly if if you're on the fence and haven't done it 2020 is the year to do it because a lot of states have gone uh, fully virtual so in washington it's a it's a two-part requirement you can do an online course and and take the exam all online at your own speed whenever you've got the time but you have to follow it up with an in-person field skills day and to be brutally honest it was kind of awful i did not enjoy it um (laughs) i I stuck out it was a lot of kids uh, and me um but uh i i felt you know they're they're trying to make a point but they kind of use some scare tactics which for me, it was fine, but it kind of traumatized some of the 11-year-olds in the class. Um, <laughs> and, you know, trying to, to really drive home the points about muzzle control and, and that sort yep. of thing, which is so important. And I, I don't... Did they mean, show any videos? No videos. Oh, okay. um, we had to we had to walk around. It was at a shooting range, and we had to walk around the shooting range um, with, you know, unloaded guns in hand and kind of go... Basically, an obstacle course. Go under a fence, cross a log, and make sure you don't point the gun in, in the direction of anywhere that you shouldn't, which is really important. But... I agree. It was there was a wait list to get in. Um, it was intimidating to participate in, and if I wasn't sufficiently motivated to go out and start hunting, uh, I that was a barrier. Yeah. Yep, and that's. I mean, it's a story that I've heard from others, and and have really been kind of curious about because of some of the more recent. I don't know if. Washington, I'll be curious, maybe you could comment if they have sort of this apprenticeship model. I know in here in Minnesota, you could, it was a big deal when they, they said you could finally go out and hunt with an experienced hunter, somebody that had their hunter safety and license. You didn't have to have the certificate, but you could go out and try upland hunting. And this is what Mark and I were talking about. And I, I want to say now there's like almost a way that you can almost go that mentored route all the way to getting your hunter safety without even doing the field test. But I would have to, I couldn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a great idea. We, we have a similar thing where I believe it's for one year you can have a waiver. So as long as you're with a a licensed adult and, and actively hunting with them, you, you can go one year of getting your license without having had your hunter's ed. But after that uh, you have to attend the class or this year, uh, just do it online, which is a, an awesome opportunity for for us uh, for us introverts who who may not want to go to the class. Right, that is a good good pointer. If somebody's thinking about it, to go and do it this year. And again, as you clearly highlighted, safety, muzzle control. We're talking about firearms. I mean, it's it's the top priority when it comes to hunting, and it's not something to be taken lightly. But if you can if you can use this year as an opportunity to do that and then you know continue, if you have questions continue to seek out the help of a mentor or, sure. or an experienced friend that's a good way to go about it definitely at what point how, i'm i'm curious so it started with duck hunting mm-hmm. you and joe were duck hunting where did the where did the first spark or interest of upland hunting come in was it was it dog related? Was it bird related? You know, did you flush some upland birds on the way to the duck blind or on the way out of the duck blind, I should say? Well, how did that happen? I did almost step on a pheasant one time at a release okay. site that we were duck hunting at, which scared me to death. But yeah. um, no, I, 
To to the Washington Fish and Wildlife's credit, um, they they hosted with PF with Pheasants Forever a uh, an Upland Experience Day. It was a one day uh, half classroom, half hunting experience, and. For any agencies and, and outreach folks listening, it was not geared for kids, which was awesome. There's a lot of us adults out there that really, really want to go have this experience. But uh, but a lot of those activities tend to be really geared towards kids. But this was open to all ages. And uh, and yeah, they, they planted pheasants for us. They had PF volunteers come with their dogs and we split up into little groups. So it was just Joe and me and, and one volunteer and a couple of his, he had a couple short hairs. And it was a contract experience you're in this section of field and you know there's birds planted out there but in terms of getting getting a taste for it you have a bird encounter you watch the dogs work for me that was just that was just magic and and like i joked it was dry and it was warm and it was the middle of the day, which had me sold. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, and in terms of, you know, the, the other pieces all come later. You know, now I, I am completely in love with my bird dogs. I'm in love with the outdoor experience. It, whether I get a bird or not, I'm out there having a great time. But, but for a first time experience to actually have that bird contact, to pull the trigger, to learn how to, to clean the bird and, and prepare it. That was just, that was really, really key. And so that was a one day experience. And, and we had already been, been on the fence thinking about our, our next dog and thinking about it okay. maybe being a bird dog. And that sold us on, on ultimately getting a versatile dog that could do both waterfowl and upland. Yeah. That's kind of a, that's a great reference point really for an event like that, Pheasants Forever, kind of the perfect mix of classroom stuff and then field experience. And like you said, being able to, a lot of recruitment folks and our three folks will talk about the importance of hunter success and making sure that, you know, somebody's first day in the field isn't an awful weather day with no birds and no action because you might walk away scratching your head. And, and so being able to see the complete picture and how everything you know, how it can look from, from start to finish to pulling the trigger. Really. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Then did you have a duck dog at that point? No, we had a, we had a greater Swiss mountain dog who was a phenomenal uh, hiking partner. Um, She carried a pack. She carried her own weight whenever we were backpacking, but she didn't do wet grass, let alone water. So no, she was, she she was useless when it came to hunting. (laughs) All right. So then what comes next? acquiring a bird dog or going out hunting with somebody else with a dog? What, what came next? Uh, we are serial researchers. Uh, right. You need to know yeah, that, that Joe and I are both engineers, so we can study everything to the nth degree. So sure. um, incidentally, for that uh, for my birthday that year, Joe had gotten me Craig Koshik's book, uh, The Pointing Dogs, The Continentals, uh, and, yep. and that was living on the coffee table. And so I have read every page of that backwards and forwards and had studied all these dog breeds. And so the next step was contacting breeders and, and eventually, you know, just, just learning as much as I could and eventually getting on a wait list for a dog. Um, we did not have, we didn't have a hunting friend that that we went with, you know, uh, since getting into it, obviously our network has grown through NAVDA sure. and, and the German clubs. And, and now we've got all kinds of, of hunting partners and friends. But at the time we were, we were definitely striking out on our own, trying to figure it out on our own. So, and, and like I said, we're both introverts. So it was a lot of internet research. It was a lot of, well, let's, let's try this and see. So we were, we were duck hunting uh, since we didn't really need a dog for that because we had the canoe uh, until we had the the, the pointing dog. And, and that's when we were able to finally upland hunt on our own. Awesome. 
I'm guessing what it had been in that research phase, is that where you first encountered some Project Dublin stuff at some point? Yeah, yeah, it would have been. Um, and, you know, I remember AJ was on uh, the Hunting Dog podcast with Ron Bame. That's what we were oh, listening yeah. to at yep. the time. AJ was on there, and I had seen some of their articles online and stuff, and, and he had put out a call and said they were looking for contributors, especially new hunters who who could write from that perspective. And I thought, well, bingo, I like to write, and I'm definitely new at this. So, uh, yeah. so that was how we ended up getting connected, was, was thanks to Ron Bame, believe it or not. Yeah. I think you bring up another interesting point, just, again, for folks listening out there that may be in a similar situation. And I have, I've experienced this in a certain way because the way that I upland bird hunted, and I've kind of talked about it on this podcast, I upland bird hunted with a very close circle of friends. It was a very narrowly focused type of upland hunting for a long, long time. And it wasn't until I got my bird dog six years ago and started doing some of the stuff that I do today that my network really expanded. And now I kind of have like, I feel like I have all kinds of people that yeah. I could go, yeah. could go hunting with, but similarly for you, you were at ground zero. You had, you know, literally no friends or anybody that you could turn to. And now you're not that far into it. I mean, you're a few years down the road and now you feel like you've got friends and connections everywhere. And that kind of speaks to the power of really the up and hunting community and network. Totally. Upland hunting community, the dog community, the the editor's yep. note that I wrote for Hunting Dog Confidential touches on that. Of, I'm not a people person. I love dogs and I love being by myself and I love being outside. And at yeah. no point did I expect that getting into bird dogs and, and bird hunting was going to bring me into a, a people community that I just, I love dearly. And, and uh, yeah, that was, that was not on my radar at all for where this was going to go. Yeah, that's really cool. So early days of upland hunting and, you know, not to make it sound like you've been at it for decades, but <laughs> I think you would, you would say, you know, you're still learning something new every day, which sure. you know, we, we all are, but what are some things you recall from those first upland huntings, like frustrating moments, not knowing, you know, zero confidence, not knowing <laughs> what to look for. I mean, what do you remember? Crippling failure. No. Um, <laughs> so, so we picked up our dog in August and, okay. you know, by the time October rolled around, she's what, four months old, and we are yeah. just chomping at the bit. Like, we are going to go hunting, and we, here we have this four- or five-month-old dog. Um, so uh, so the the first phase was was a readjusting of our expectations. Um, yeah. We didn't know what, she was, what we were doing. She didn't know what she was doing, and the best we could do was go to where we thought there might be birds and, and wander around, and, and we, might, uh, we might get lucky and bump one. Um, so, yeah, I think – I think the first phase was sort of getting a hold of of how huge the universe was and and just because there are pheasants in eastern Washington doesn't mean that if I pull over at this spot in the road i'm I'm guaranteed of of finding some when I walk out sure. there and so that was yeah i I think we went through kind of readjusting expectations to just really appreciating the small stuff and and with your first dog, you know there's so many little milestones, oh, she pointed for the first time, oh you know I, I saw a bird it flew and then it was a long time before I shot a bird over her. And uh, you know the story, but the first quail I shot over her, she swallowed whole. So that was sort of this like <laughs> continuous journey of like, man, there's a lot more to this than, uh, than you know, a couple posts on Instagram might have you believe. So yeah, yeah so, sure. so readjusting expectations, finding joy in all the little stuff and just appreciating the, the growth that comes with every time that that you're out like yeah you know the, our dog is three and so i guess we've yep. been at this with her for three seasons now and uh 
Joe, you know, Joe just pointed out the other day that we're finally at the point where we can pretty reliably see a bird when we go out. We don't always shoot a bird when we go out, but yep. pretty reliably, if we say we're going to go for chucker and we think the spot is good and we're going to climb that hill, we're now reliably seeing chucker on on that on that outing. And I think that's a huge mark of success in, in third, I guess, start of the fourth season, um, even just to be able to reliably find birds. Now, yeah. making that, that into a good opportunity, getting a good shooting opportunity, capitalizing on that opportunity, that's next. Um, still a lot of dumb luck involved. But just to be able to to feel like, yeah, I've got a fairly good shot at, at seeing what it is that I'm out here for. That's taken now a couple seasons to, to get that get that down pat. So yeah, it's it's a journey for sure. Right. Didn't happen overnight, but again, it didn't take 10 years either. And yeah, I would, the confidence to kind of know that you are in the game, like you've got to be in the right place, in the right cover to even have a chance at successfully putting a bird in the bag. Of course, there are other factors that play into what makes a hunt a success, but having that confidence, knowing you're in the right spot and then putting, obviously we can always go out and not see anything that can happen at any time right. when you're hunting wild birds, but to know you're in the right spot, that's that's a game changer from when you reflect back on day one where everything is a question mark. Yeah, that's that's huge. At, at least we know we've gotten the habitat and the location right. You know, the rest of it'll come, yep. but at least you don't feel like you're flailing around. And and to your point about the network and the community, I feel like even you know, kind of end the last season, start of this season, we've grown leaps and bounds because of our network. You know, we've got friends yeah. that we're, we're trading spots. And and finally, for the first time, I don't feel like quite such a leech when it comes to knowledge. You know, we've had really, <laughs> really, you know, generous friends and, and yeah. even just internet contacts, you know, talking and, and sharing info. And, and now for the first time, I feel like I've found some of my own spots and I'm thrilled to be able to trade them and instead of just uh, instead of just accepting the help that others have, have so graciously given. Yeah, I think it's kind of a natural way that we all learn. And if you've got that good network, being able to, and and I, I suspect you and Joe are like myself and, you know, can be pretty analytical and kind of reflecting back on your hunts, but going out, having your own experience, analyzing it to death because we've got, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we're doing, yep. but then being able to talk to somebody else that has different perspectives, you know, this is, this is a way that we learn about all things in life, you know, up on hunting, just being one of them, yeah. but being able to bounce your experiences and your perspective off people within your network. I've, I have learned and grown a ton as a bird hunter by doing that a lot. Definitely. And and now this year I have a, uh, I'm running one of the dogs with a Garmin Alpha. And so my access to data has just multiplied oh, several yeah. times over. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty addicting too. Was there a bird that, because we talked about the mixed bag and sort of the opportunities that you have, was there a bird that quickly became the one that you felt the most confident with early, you know, was there, which, which bird was it right away or, or was that not the case? Uh, for me, it was quail, California quail or valley okay. quail. Um, we we have quite a lot of them. Um, they don't get hunted very hard here. Um, it's not really a, a target species, I would say. Um, you can pretty reliably find them, and especially for dog training, they can be phenomenal because once you once you scatter the covey initially, they break up into singles and doubles, and they tend to hold really well. So okay. uh, I've I've really I've spent some time, especially this year, trying to really study them and kind of understand some of their 
seasonal movements go from, you know, where I've typically been seeing them to now start to compare, well, what else am I noticing? You know, are there apples on the trees in the orchards? Are, is, is the, are the grapes still on in the vineyards? Or is that stuff all gone? And have I noticed that they've moved as a result? So it, there's enough of them. And I, I have enough encounters with them that I feel like there's something there to study as opposed to just happenstance um, yeah. and their behavior with a dog, especially with a, a young dog um, is, is really cool. And you know what? There's very little that compares to a, a covey of 20 birds getting up all around you. I mean, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care intense. how many times you've seen it. It's, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Now the answer may very well be the same, but you know, three years later, kind of into the journey, is there, is there a bird that stands out as your favorite or are you just, kind of still in the phase where you're just <laughs> you're you're loving kind of figuring them all out individually yeah the the quail are, are still a favorite and and they still hold a, a special spot in my heart but i'm really getting drawn to chucker and and i think one of the cool. reasons for that is you just you get space you're not competing for space with other hunters um i don't know if it's just that they tend to be on public land always, you know, and, and they tend to be in yeah. very rugged terrain and, and there's just a lot of room to spread out and they're not concentrated uh, in a strip of CRP or they're not concentrated right up against a stream. They're, they're spread out everywhere. And and so I, I really like the opportunity to, you can be out chucker hunting and not see anybody else all day long. And, and for me, that's a huge part of the appeal. And, and I like their challenge and, and I love some of the places that, that following them, takes us in terms of just the the quality of the hike and the views and and that sense of accomplishment after after having hiked up that high i yeah i i really enjoy them yeah anybody that has seen photos or film of chucker hunting i think the scenery is definitely something that uh it, it looks amazing on the surface and of course it takes leg and lung power to get to see some of that scenery which is cool but i've definitely heard other chucker hunters comment about sheer lack of pressure in many areas, vast expanses of public lands. I've, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody, and it, maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but sort of the fact that they are pretty evenly distributed or can be evenly distributed and not so isolated on a certain feature. I, I think I would really enjoy that because I like to just kind of wander. Mm -hmm. And I think that would, that would suit, suit that kind of walk or hike pretty well. Yeah. You know, maybe you go up to the ridge and you just follow the ridge along because you're not interested in climbing up and down and up and down. But as you travel sure. that ridge, you know, the dog will go on point or the dog will get birdie. And, and maybe part of that is me just sort of getting into better into tune with them. And, and maybe there are nuances and details in the landscape that I should be looking for At this point, it kind of feels like, you know, you're walking along and oh, look, there they sure. are. So um, yeah. yeah, perhaps call it naivete, but, uh, but I, I do feel like they're certainly more spread out than, than pheasants tend to be. Yeah, I'm sure like yeah, like all game birds they tend to key off specific features and those I'm sure those nuances are there, but you know, it may may very well be that you can find that sort of nuance cover in very even distributions mm -hmm. of said public land too. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. That I think on on that note again, new hunter stuff talking about public land, private land has T tell me about the breakdown of your hunting. I assume a large portion, if not all, has occurred on public land, but talk to me about accesses and places that you found to hunt. Yeah, we are all public land with the exception of Washington's private land access program, uh, which okay. I guess still is technically public. Publicly accessible. Publicly accessible land, land. Yep. yeah. Um, yep. No, that's that's it. And, and I don't know... Um, People say you can go knock on doors and ask. I haven't worked up the nerve to do that. Um, yeah. But 
I also haven't really found myself wanting for additional opportunities. You know, we've got we've got a lot of public land in Washington. If you're after Chucker, that's that's a ton of you know national forest, state forest, BLM, yep. state access areas. So um, I I haven't found myself really needing to to push beyond that at this point. I'm still exploring, um, but uh, no, we are we are definitely public land hunters, and and we depend on on that access being available to us. Yeah. So I'm curious how the Washington upland season kind of plays out the the storyline in the sense that you do have opportunities with mixed bag different mm-hmm. species. I imagine the seasons, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of overlap but they they vary. You know, it's November 24th today. Mm-hmm. Tell me how your season has kind of played out from start to finish, I, you know, you started chasing stuff in September probably. Yeah, and yeah, you know, what transitions have you made? Yeah. My, my countdown clock is set for September 1st. That's when grouse opens. There you um, go. And, uh, and this was yeah another kind of a new focus this year. Uh, last year we had a litter of puppies right in November. Yes. And so that was not good for the hunting season. Um, <laughs> it was <laughs> that, that wasn't a good idea. It wasn't, wasn't good planning schedule wise, but uh, <laughs> nobody talked to my dog about her time. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, September 1st is when we get started on, on grouse and we have rough grouse and lower elevations as well as, uh, blue grouse and we have spruce grouse. I've never seen them here, but, but we do have them. Um, and as far as blue grouse, we have both sooty and dusky, um, sort of generally split by, by the, um, uh, by the crest of the, the Cascade mountain range. So, okay. um, on my side of the mountains on the West side, it's, it's, temperate rainforest it's very thick it's evergreen so it doesn't matter how late into the season you go there's still plenty of foliage um so we hear roughed grouse uh like when we're out hiking on logging roads and stuff you tend to hear them far more than you see them uh people do have success shooting rough grouse on this side um i have not and i've decided there's probably better ways to spend my time that that could be more productive on grouse. So uh, we enjoy them drumming in the spring and, and, uh, and we see them when we're hiking, but I have not focused much on, on hunting them on this side. Okay. Go two hours to the East. You're in uh, you're in a high desert. The mountains are, you know, you're more kind of ponderosa pine, very dry. And, and that's where we have the dusky grouse and the rough grouse over there. Um, and I like hunting there because when a bird gets up, you can see it for the next 20 seconds or so, you yeah. know, so, um, yeah, so, so, uh, we did, did some dusky grouse hunting this year and, uh, to me, you know, you, you kind of run up against, it could be hot and, you know, you're definitely carrying a ton of water for your dogs. You never yeah, quite know what to expect in September, but it's something to do in September as you're getting excited for our, our uh, quail and, and the other upland seasons that open in October for us. So yeah, we go from September and then early October quail chucker hunts open up. Uh, okay. Like late October, pheasant opens up about the same time that ducks do. I think right about around the end of October, and uh, and they go through uh, grouse ends at the end of the year. But the other upland species go through mid January. So um, yeah, we're we're right in the middle of it right here. Um, in some of the areas we hunt, we're up against snow. Um, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, I'm looking out the window, I <laughs> yeah. snow falling right now. Um, you know, where, where we're going tomorrow, I think the forecast is like 45. And so it's kind of, it's, it's hit oh, yeah. miss. Um, yep. Certainly for Chucker, your south facing slopes are still very dry and, and, uh, and warm right now. So that won't be too much of a problem. And when the mountains get snow, then we'll just head down and, and uh, look for a quail and, and some of the, the drier, warmer areas. But yeah, we'll be busy all all through uh, through mid January. Okay, so will that 
opportunity on quail in more or less snow-free cover, will that persist all the way through January 15? Yeah, I, I they they do get snow where the quail are, um, okay, but okay. you know they're in some pretty thick cover, and they seem to yeah. find ways to be out of the snow. And and we certainly still find them, uh, yeah, all the way through January. Okay, I'm just looking for reasons to be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> we we can definitely we can have good hunting all the way up until the end of our season, which is it. Wisconsin used to have opportunity to hunt rough grouse in. January, but now our season pretty much ends here, December 31st, kind of end of the new year. And usually you can still hunt, but there is a possibility that we could be essentially snowed out of our, snowed out of our hunting season. But by that time we've, uh, we've had, you know, had plenty of time in the woods too. Yeah. yeah. We didn't talk dog breed. You read Craig Koshik's book. You got to tell us what kind of breed you wound up with? <laughs> we got we, we got the number one species in or breed in America. No, um, I have a Deutsch I have Deutsch Longhaars, um, which is the German registered German bred uh, version of a German long hair pointer, which probably doesn't help you anymore. To try to pinpoint exactly what kind of a dog that is, but um, you know, I, I I wanted a versatile dog. Um, I was also deeply aware of the fact that no matter how much I like to hunt, uh, the majority of the time, that dog's a pet. Um, where yeah. You can hunt as much as you want, and it's still not the majority of the year. So, yep. um, so I was really looking for a dog that had a reputation for being just really, really excellent in the house and that I like to look at. And, and you know, you've got setters. It's, I just, I yep. really like that kind of longer haired feathered tail look. And so, um, yeah, Piper was our, our first Deutsch Longhaar. We got her from Nebraska, um, in what, 2017 and, uh, just fell in love with the breed. They're, they're yeah. phenomenal dogs. They're really well tempered. Um, and, you know, the, the whole premise of, of keeping the breed within the German system is that you're, you're keeping performance requirements, a, a, a part of the breed and, and no breedings are done without the dog having passed a series of tests to demonstrate that one, it, it has the natural ability that it's meant to, but also that it has some, some trainability and, and is able to reach a, a certain level of being a, a high performing hunting dog. And, and, you know, we're one, we're engineers and we like data and, and two, um, just being new, I, I was so afraid of ending up with a dog and maybe I wouldn't know, like, am I training it wrong or does the dog just not have the tools that it needs? I I, I didn't know how to know. And so I, I sure. wanted to err on the side of let's make sure the dog has all the tools it needs. The dog won't be the problem. I'm going to be the problem here. You know, yeah, what, you kind of remove that variable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Can yeah. I keep up with the dog? Um, but, uh, but I definitely wanted to, to, uh, make sure that that I, I wasn't going to be up, up against you know just like I don't know if I got a good dog or not so that was yes, that was yeah. what led us into the German system and and uh and and ultimately into the long hairs was just because um yeah they're they have not really been so diluted with a with a pet market or or with backyard breeders or, or anything that I felt was a risk to me knowing what I was going to get yeah, I I can certainly appreciate your line of thinking because that's definitely a way that I would go about it. You're based on the way you're talking about it. You know, I'm getting giving the sense that you're really happy with your decision to go that route and get involved with the club. And like I'm looking at it, you know, you said you're you're an introvert, but you really did immerse yourself in. <laughs> we jumped in both feet, yes. Yeah, and and upland birds, you know, from multiple angles, you know, from going to that pheasant hunt putting yourself in that position, getting the bird duck, getting into the clubs, again, um, immersion and giving yourself 
whether or not it's like your forte at going and meeting people and glad handing and, and making friends, you put yourself in a position to make those connections. And I can, I can understand and appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I have found that it is a small group of fiercely devoted people. And that really speaks to me. And, and yeah, I've just, I've loved everything that has come out of that initial decision of flipping through Craig's book and going, Oh, these five breeds look pretty good. I should contact some breeders. You know, I, one of the reasons we picked the long hair is because the, the breeder that I was talking to, we just really hit it off. And I thought, Oh, you know what? This is somebody that is going to be with me over the long haul. When I've got a question, I can email her and, and she's just, she's been a phenomenal resource too. So yeah, no, you're right. It's I, we jumped in both feet, and uh, and and here we are a couple of years later, fully invested. Was there anything else from the new to upland hunting perspective? Was there any other challenges or barriers that come to mind? You know, like we talked about hunter safety, but how about just shooting guns and learning to shoot at flying birds? How did that process go for you? Yeah, that's that's a good one because I didn't grow up around guns. Um, didn't yep. grow up opposed to them. Just just pretty ignorant uh, about them, and um, and so yeah, kind of understanding like, oh, now there's a gun in the house. Like I should kind of learn how to handle it and learn how to yeah. handle it safely, and and then that to. Um, to learning how to shoot at moving objects. And I found the shooting range to be super intimidating. Um, I, I don't love going there. In fact, what I love doing, we bought a, a cheap little um, clay thrower and, and we, there's a spot on some public land near us that uh, we're able to target shoot there. And so okay. we can go fling our own clays and the, the progress I can make there is so much more compared to at the shooting range. Cause I don't feel the, the procedural pressure of like, you know, you've got five people up to, for, for shooting trap for and sure. the person before you has yep. gone and, Oh no, am I quick enough at loading my gun? And and that's probably my own shortcomings of just being nervous of, of looking like a fool or, or imposing on somebody else's time or doing the wrong thing, you know, but I, I really, I really value the time where I can just take my time, go out on, on my own with my husband and, try new things, you know, set it up for a crossing shot and, and miss the first 20 and that's okay and figure out how to work a lead. And and that experimentation that you can do on your own, we're super fortunate to be able to go do that within, you know, 20 minutes of our house. But um, I've grown more there and I've gotten better there than, than I think I, I did at the, the uh, shooting range. I just, I find that to be a super intimidating uh, environment. Now this year I was really lucky to get some professional instruction in shooting, which was, was deeply needed. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, if, if you're on the fence about being able to, to go out and get some lessons from somebody who knows what they're doing and more importantly, somebody who can look at you and know what you're doing, uh, that was huge. Uh, I'm a, I'm a much better, there, there was a step in my shooting ability from before that day to after that day and, and in Joe's as well, just, just simple little things, you know, and, and what a gift to be able to watch what somebody else is doing and say, Oh, you, you shot behind it and here's what you should try instead. And just, yeah, it was, it was remarkable. Yeah. And that's a, that is a topic that I've alluded to on this podcast before and talking to some of the folks, you know, the Keith Coyles of the world and the Andy Duffy's shooting at a clay pigeon is the feedback that you get can be all or nothing in that, Hey, I broke it or, Oh no, I missed it. I have no clue where, you know, like we have speculation, but again, you talk about being a beginner and just starting out. And I like acknowledging that, you know, going to the range with, you're talking about shooting guns. So there's the pressure right there. I mean, if that's not enough, then you've got everything else. Like you're out of your element, you're out of your comfort zone. And I can 
100% relate to those feelings. We've all been in situations like that where we're out of our comfort zone. So going and sort of, again, isolating a few variables just so it's just you and the gun, you and Joe, you're in a comfortable spot and you can deal with the unfamiliarity of shooting, get a foundational set of skills that allows you to then turn around, you know, the next year and actually go get shooting instruction where you've got the basics of the gun down and you can step out of your comfort zone and let somebody help you. Yeah. Yeah. And even just, you know, loading and unloading, yes. you know, to somebody that grew up around guns, that's second nature. But to me, it was like, I was looking at the gun, like, well, I don't want to press the wrong thing, Correct. you know? And, and yeah. so it just, it can be very intimidating. So yeah, having, having some space to, to practice that sort of thing, um, not under pressure of other people waiting for you was huge. What was the, the shooting instruction like where you walk in a sporting clays course? How did that play out for you? Yeah, we were at a sporting clays course, although he had sort of modified some of the stations. Sure. So we camped out at like two or three stations and, and we weren't necessarily shooting them the way that they were designed. But a lot of repetition, you know, started with just clay going straight away from you, just straight away from you, straight away from you. And, and what I learned from that was so much of it is visualization. Yeah. It's not a shooting lesson. It's an eyesight lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what a difference that made now, you know, when I go out and I, we had an experience the other day where, where, uh, Joe flushed some chucker, they ended up kind of flying past me. I wasn't in a position to shoot. So I just watched him go by. And I had this moment where I saw this chucker go by. I saw him turn his head and look at me and then turn back and keep on going. And I thought, you know, I've, I've never. It, it's slowing down time as you're watching. You have the time to see the bird. You have the time to see details on that bird. And if you get caught up in the the rush of a, a covey flushing, you don't see any of it. And so, yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from that lesson was just there's a lot more time than you think. Look for a detail, study that detail, and the shooting really is secondary to what you're seeing, provided that you have a good mount and, and all that. Right. It, it's secondary to, to what you're watching. Yeah narrowing the visual focus which is much easier said than done <laughs> we've all yeah. we've all been startled by the uh, thundering wings of a game bird in fact i had an opportunity to shoot my a sharp tail rose the first sharp tail that my six-month-old puppy rose pointed in south dakota oh. a couple days ago and it yeah. was i mean it was picture perfect in the sense that we were I was hoping there was a sharp tail in this spot. It was the likely spot, one of the most likely spots of the walk. Rose walks up this grassy knob. She gets birdie, goes on point a couple of times. My heart rate is elevated. I walk yeah. in and nothing happens. We kind of start moving away, moving around the knob, and she's she kind of loses scent, and then all of a sudden she hits it again. I reverse course. I'm, I'm walking, you know, trying to get ahead of her nose. She moves once, goes on point. I take two steps and a sharp till gets up not 10 yards from me flushes straight away and i shot so fast i mean i shot two (laughs) shells quicker than you know like by the time my gun was empty i probably had another 20 yards to shoot this bird and i missed it and i watched it fly away and i i like fell to my knees. I was just devastated that I <laughs> missed that. Yeah. And you keep replaying that oh, scene over and yeah. over again. I had yeah, a 10 yeah. hour drive home from South Dakota that day and I <laughs> could not get it out of my head. <laughs> I, I hear you. I have a lot of those scenes. Yeah. We've got a, we've got a one-year-old puppy right now yeah. and, and, uh, yep. I've, I've had the opportunity to let her down as well. But, uh. but if you, if you were to ask circling back to kind of what got me on that thought, if you were to ask me, what was my visual like on that bird? It was, you know, I, rem- I, I could see it, you know, sharp tail against 
blue sky background. It's not hard to see, but I don't recall having just like a laser like focus on that. And I know that I rushed, you know, the, the mm-hmm. overwhelming feeling of a bird that gets up close to you can really, for me personally, it can really encourage me to rush. And some of that is yeah. being a rough grouse hunter where our visibility is limited, but a lot of times you have a lot more time than you think and acquiring that focus and making a smooth, slow gun mount. That's, that's the difference maker. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, now I know that we uh, shared a similar interest in guns and, and still do, but tell me about your, your gun situation. What do you currently have and what do you enjoy shooting? Yeah. Um, so, so I started off, you know, duck hunting. I I have a a Winchester SX3. Um, it weighs a ton. Um, I shoot it. Okay. Not great. I didn't know anything about, uh, gun fit when I bought it. Other than I went to the store. Yeah. Went to the store and, and uh, you know, tried shouldering a couple and that felt all right. And and your needs for a duck gun are a little bit different than upland yep. anyway. So, so that's where I started. Uh, I was with a semi-auto. And and then um, I I went, uh, speaking of hook, line, and sinker, as I got into upland and I got tired of carrying my heavy 12-gauge camo um, <laughs> semi-auto around in the uplands, I, I got a Fox Sterlingworth in, in 16-gauge. In 16, yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. And, you know, one of my initial thoughts on that, again, I'm reading on the internet, I'm, I'm trying to find out as a woman, what kind of gun should I be looking that's going to fit my longer neck a little better and, and kind of fit my frame. And, and so I was thinking, perhaps incorrectly, that, you know, maybe one of these older American guns that's got some more drop at the heel might kind of work out better for me. I, I, at this point, I don't think that's true, but that was my line of thinking that justified the gun that I really wanted to get, which yeah. was the Sterling worth. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, I shoot it. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a nice gun. It's fun to shoot. Yep. It feels, feels really good to shoulder and swing. And, and I just, I enjoy looking at it. I enjoy hunting with it. Um, and, and so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great gun and it's been fine for me. Um, this season though, I, uh, I am currently carrying a siren tempio, which speaking of guns made specifically for women, yeah. um, really really cool that they that caesar greeny caesar greeny has this whole line of products designed for women uh it's an over under which i i was sort of fundamentally opposed to i don't know if it was because of tradition or i just i like the the feel of a side by side i like looking down the two barrels that are side by side but the shooting instructor convinced me that i would probably shoot an over under a little better so (laughs) i took his word for it um and so far i've only had it out on on one trip so far uh but it it works it kills birds which is good um it's a beautiful gun uh, it's in a 20 gauge 20 so I'm, gauge. I'm getting a little smaller each time um and it's light and i point it well and it fits me and uh it's it is a bit of a game changer to have a product that actually fits you well as opposed to you having to adjust to fit the gun right now does that gun have a monte carlo stock slightly okay. yes yeah the slight yep. money yeah so stuff. it comes up to meet my higher cheekbone yeah yeah and you know when you were talking about the american gun more drop longer neck like i you know i i have acquired enough knowledge about gun fit to kind of have an idea of what's going on but i could see how you would go down that line of thinking thinking that you know more drops going to get down on your shoulder and your head is up and you're seeing you're seeing over the gun but mm-hmm. yeah normally they'll they'll have like a woman's gun will have kind of a slight or it can have a slight Monte Carlo stock come up, meet the higher cheekbone. I couldn't yeah. tell you exactly what's going on there, but I was just curious. That's an awesome gun to be shooting though. It is. And and what was 
totally amazing. And so this day that I had the shooting instruction, we had a couple different siren models there. And within the line, they have a little bit different dimensions for the stock. And, and you know, I guess the, the forgive me, I, I don't speak gun fitting language, but some of the dimensions were different. So it was going to place my eye a little bit different relative yep. to the rib. And we were shooting at the pattern board and I was, you know, shooting, 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 shooting. Then he says, switch guns. And he says, you're going to shoot this one a little bit high. Now, I don't believe he was in my head making me shoot high, but I shouldered it just the same as I did with all the others. And there's the whole pattern moved up three inches on the pattern board. It just, yeah. it was, it was remarkable how just if you're, if you have a consistent mount and you're doing it over and over again in a controlled environment, how slightly different dimensions on the gun change where it shoots, which is everything when you're targeting a bird. Yep. Shooting the patterning board is one of the most beneficial things that I have done in recent years, being able to shoot with, you know, Del Whitman and some other shooting instructors. That is eye-opening. Uh, I, I don't know if you could say pun intended, but uh, <laughs> sort of. Uh, but yeah, that is something that most of us probably don't do enough of because we can't all just walk out in our backyard and shoot a patterning board, but it would be awesome right. if we could, because that <laughs> is very, very telling. And if you can, again, like you said, pick up a different gun or make an adjustment to your gun, like on a, on a shooting instructor's try gun, then you can really start to see those changes right there in front of you. You can see where your pattern's going. And that kind of helps wire the brain and make those connections as to why a certain gun shoots the way that it does. Yeah, yeah. And and to help you understand that, you know, maybe the last three birds that you missed might not necessarily be your fault, or it could be improved, at least. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's transition a little bit and talk about Hunting Dog Confidential before we run out of time here. Uh, Hunting Dog Confidential, take me back to square one. Podcast first, right? Yeah. Uh, AJ, AJ pitched this podcast, actually he pitched a couple different podcasts at me. And I said, no, 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 I'm a behind the scenes person. I don't <laughs> want to be out there. I, you know, over my dead body. Um, and, and finally he said, I, we want, how about we do this podcast with Craig Koshik? And that got my attention because yeah. I like Craig a lot. And, uh, and I owe basically, uh, everything that I've done in Upland hunting to, to that book that he wrote. So, um, so he got my interest when he said, let's, let's pair up with Craig and, and do something on dogs. And um, as Craig and I started batting around ideas, we just kept coming back to this idea of like, it'd be really nice to have a hunting podcast that was a little bit more scripted. Um, you know, it's just the two of us each episode. Uh, at some point, people will be bored of hearing just the two of us and we'll have to bring in guests. But for now, you know, Craig is an encyclopedia. He just, he, he is, talk about serial researcher. Um, he, yeah. he just, he goes down these rabbit holes and, and that's what he does. He's a, he's a writer. And, and so he just has so much knowledge on hunting dogs, not only bird dogs and, you know, pointing dogs, and, but, you know, we're, we're deep into hounds right now. We're going to do terriers next, you know, just the, the world of hunting dogs, especially beyond birds is, is just enormous. So we, we just, we started this kind of plan of, we'll do it a little bit more scripted, um, work through these subjects in kind of a logical fashion. And, um, people have really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, and we've enjoyed producing it and, you know, we're, we're right after this, we'll be recording episode 16. So, um, yeah, we've, we've had a lot of fun with that. And then the reception was so good and, and, uh, you know, there was so much energy around having all this researched content on dog breeds. Cause if there's one thing that unites us, it's that we all love our dogs. Um, and, and so we had this idea of, of going to print with a magazine. And, and so, Craig's the editor in chief and, and I'm the managing editor for that. And, and we wanted to take that same 
feel of, you know, the history and the culture and, and really using dogs. Yeah, the magazine articles are about dogs and the podcast episodes are about dogs, but but the dogs are more a, a catalyst for storytelling. Yes. Um, it, they, you can kind of center the story around the dogs, but they're ultimately a reflection. And we talk about this in the podcast all the time. They're a reflection of the culture that created them. They represent what was important uh, to, to the people that created that breed of dog and, and what was necessary and what they were going to be used for, for, for hunting or survival or recreation or whatever it was. The dogs just become a reflection of the people. And, and so we've taken that theme forward into the magazine, which uh, anyone who, who subscribes to Project Upland should have received their, their yep. Hunting Dog Confidential yep. magazine as a free gift. Now, it's only the first issue. So if you love it and you want to see more, it's coming out twice a year. So the next issue will be in April. Okay. Uh, you will have to go subscribe to that because only the first one was a free gift. But um, yeah, it's it's a, in my opinion, my biased opinion, it's a beautiful publication that's about 200 pages. So it's about twice the length of Project Upland, but comes out half as often. And um, we just, we went around the world. Uh, We covered uh, Spitz type dogs, uh, Lakas in Russia. Uh, We did pointers in South Africa. We do big game tracking with a a little tuckle. We tried to do pretty even balance of waterfowl and upland, uh, as well as some more obscure topics like like the the big game hunting in Russia. And uh, there's some historical archive pieces in there too um one of them craig wrote he he took excerpts from a a usda document on various attempts at introducing game birds into north america you know we've got a a handful of introduced species right now that are, are popular to hunt but if you look back in history there were attempts at black grouse and guinea fowl and the capricale and all these other species that for one reason or another didn't take off. And and so he has kind of a fun look at, well, if we, if any of those had taken off, would our methods in hunting with our dogs and training our dogs be any different? You know, would we have dogs that were treeing capricales as opposed to, um, you know, trying to point rough grouse in yeah. the forest? So kind of, kind of an interesting look at that uh, from the dog's point of view, but, but using some of those archived historical documents. Yeah. I, I find it very cool in that, you know, bird dogs have been a huge focus within Project Upland, but we always kind of have this reminder, like as a team, we have this thing in the back of our head, well, you know, dogs aren't everything Upland and you can Upland hunt without a dog and that kind of aspect. But so I, I really appreciate sort of the full on, there's nothing holding you guys back from doing it. Just <laughs> no. all dogs, all, all the dogs, time. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. <laughs> which is very cool. And, and I mean, as you mentioned, it, it, it brings a lot of people together and it deepens the experience for many, many people. It certainly did with me. It changed up and hunting forever. And I don't foresee myself ever doing it without a dog. And right. that's not an uncommon story for sure. But yeah, one of the things that makes Craig so unique and his, and his book so amazing is he spent time traveling the world and, and studying the cultures and the history, just like you said. And now the content that you and Craig are producing, it's, you know, it's beyond just the, the English setter generally weighs 40 to 60 pounds. It right. does this right. and that, you know, it's much, much deeper than that. So for anybody that hasn't listened to Hunting Dog Confidential, I mean, you're 16 episodes in, you certainly have, haven't covered all the breeds, but you, you definitely started with covering a lot of the common hunting breeds and probably many of the breeds that folks listen to this podcast hunt with so if if folks are curious definitely go check out the episode about your particular breed and see what it's all about because you will learn something about the history and the culture around that particular breed which is very cool 
Yeah, the first five episodes we do pointing dogs. Yeah. Uh, we kind of start at the, at the beginning. What is a point? How did dogs start doing yes. that? And then we kind of break down regionally in, into the different um, continental and, and then UK and Ireland pointing breeds. And then we went into spaniels and retrievers and, and now we're into hounds. And uh, one of the cool things has been just the volume of listener feedback, including people in far-flung corners of the world that say, hey, check out this photo of my dog and they'll name the species or the breed and it's not something that we've ever heard of before. And so we're hearing about these little niche dog breeds, you know, in, in other parts of the world that we had no idea of. And yeah. we try to make a point to feature those on, on a future episode just to mention, you know, the Polish hunting spaniel or the Murray River Retriever in Australia or these things that we had no idea until you start connecting people uh, through the podcast. Yeah. Podcast and magazine and hunting dog confidential is off and rolling in 2020. Yeah, yeah, and we've got big plans for 2021. We're not going to stop when we finish all the breeds. We've, we've got some other ideas we're kicking around. So it's, uh, I think there's plenty of, of subjects to keep us going and, and entertained for a long time. Yeah, I know the feedback that I have gotten from just friends of mine and folks that listen to the Project Elfin podcast and stuff that I see people are loving the little bit different format of Hunting Dog Confidential and the really the deep dive into history and the culture and stories. It's It's been very cool and I've enjoyed it very much so far. Good. Thanks. Appreciate that. So I've got to ask you a couple questions here before we close. We talked about kind of dogs, guns, birds. Is there something that is is there something you're focusing on this season above all else? Are you are you really trying to get awesome at finding a particular bird? Are you is is maybe it's wing shooting? I mean, what is the what is the top priority for you in your upland hunting pursuit at the moment? Does anything come yeah. to mind? Um, so, so the hun is my goal species. Oh, that's I would right. love yep. to, yeah, I'd love to hit January and, and have bagged a hun. Um, just in in the spirit of mixed bags, I, I would just really really love to get one. Um, and the the goal for this year has been becoming much more knowledgeable in our quote unquote local hunting spots yes. um, and, and really deepening our knowledge instead of just expanding the breadth. Cool. Have you seen any hunts this year? Have I seen any hunts? Yeah. yeah. Um, they have a, a pretty distinctive red tail when they take off and fly away. So I have talk about images burned into your mind. I, I can see that red tail and I really want to get a good opportunity to shoot at one. Uh, Cause I think, uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Have you read anything about Huns by Ben O'Williams? I have not. I've heard okay. him on podcasts, but yeah, no, I that's definitely something I, I want to get my hands on. One of the things that I recall in his reading, and I haven't seen I haven't seen enough I haven't been in the proximity of enough flushing Huns to really connect this, but he, he and I don't know if Ben O'Williams coined this. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, but he talks about when they flush, they make a sound and it sounds like a rusty gate opening. And I think, I think when I was in North Dakota this year, I heard it and kind of had that light bulb moment, but I was curious if you had, if that made any sense to you, especially not having read that before. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And, and we're in areas where it could be a covey of chucker. It could be Hans. They kind of overlap there. And so, yeah, sure. the giveaway is, yeah, that's a great description is that, that rusty gate. Yeah. I remembered what I was going to ask you. Closing okay. thoughts, advice for new hunters, people kicking the tires, thinking oh. about it. Any, any uh, words of wisdom or advice yeah. for new upland hunters? That's a, that's a great question. Um, Cause one of the things that I had that, you know, when we're thinking about, recruitment and retention that, that maybe not everybody has. I just had an undying desire to make this happen, yeah. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. <laughs> overcome obstacles. This is what I was going to be doing. And, and everybody may not have that. So I, I guess 
my my advice to new hunters, number one, stick with it. It gets better. You get more opportunities. You'll get into a network of people. Um, and and don't be afraid to ask. That's where I fell short. I'm, I'm hesitant to ask for help. I'm hesitant to ask for advice. Uh, don't. Now, now that I know like three tricks to finding chucker in my area, I will share them with anybody yeah. who wants to, <laughs> because it just, it, it's so valuable to have that knowledge, to know that you're in the right spot, to know that you're at least going to give yourself an opportunity to get on some birds, uh, whether yeah. or not that results in a shot bird or not, you know, at least, you know, you're in the right spot. So, so my advice would be, don't be like me, be, be willing to ask for help. And, and, you know, if you're at NAVDA or if you're at, you know, where, wherever it is that you find yourself, uh, strike up a conversation even if it's uncomfortable even if you're shy do it it's it's worth it yeah i would agree and also say that you know when the student becomes the teacher even if we don't have all the answers sometimes articulating our thoughts and expressing them to somebody that is wanting to to learn more you know that helps us you know better our understanding i think of of what we're doing yeah absolutely and you don't have to know everything to have something to share so yeah yeah. Awesome, Jennifer. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Project Dublin podcast. You and Craig, I know you're going to record a podcast this afternoon. Please keep up the awesome work with Honey Dog Confidential, loving what we're seeing so far. And for everybody out there listening, where should they go? Where is the best place to go to check out the podcast and the magazine? It's all at Project Upland. Okay. Um, and so if you can navigate your way over to the, the podcasts from Project Upland, which inevitably you do because you find Project Upland podcast, yep. uh, you will find Hunting Dog Confidential there and you'll find links to subscribe to the magazine as well. Good deal. All right, Jennifer. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you have a great holiday weekend, and I hope you enjoy finding some birds. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. You have a good holiday, too. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. Quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA Shotguns, Gumleaf USA, Dogtra Collars, ESP Hearing Protection, Trinity Kennels, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to visit projectupland.com to read, watch, and listen to more great upland hunting content. And please, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, leave the podcast a rating and a review that really helps us out and it helps more people find the show. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.